Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Hello, friends and or loved ones. I am Robert Evans, and this is Behind the Bastards, the show where we tell you everything you don't know about the very worst people in all of history. With me this week is my guest, Jaquise Neal, host of Culture hey. Kings, comedian, actor, uh, Golden Gloves boxer? No, I did that one last time. Um, What's up, man? Hey, it's uh, it's good to have you, Jaquise. Yeah, man. Uh, so this is a show where I read a story about uh, someone terrible or that explains something behind someone terrible to a, a guest who's coming in cold. Normally we do like a guy like Saddam Hussein or yeah. Hitler or something. I'm too special for that. Uh, no, today we've got a different one. Yeah. Um, based a little bit on some stuff that's in the news, obviously. Uh, there are some camps with uh, children, concentrating mm-hmm. some children who have been separated from their families on yeah. the uh, the border. So I felt like now might be a good time to do a Behind the Bastards that delves into the history of concentration camps. Because it's a it. weird and fascinating history. And uh it gets behind several bastards. We will be talking about the guy who invented the concentration camps. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. shit. Yeah. So this is this is a All deep right. dive. But so it's he's an the ultimate history. bastard. He's he's kind of the ultimate bastard. He's king yeah. bastard. Yeah, he's one of the king bastards. Okay. There's there's so many terrible people because in murderers <laughs> murderers didn't yeah. invent murder. No. Well, uh, well, except the murderer, first a right? murderer yeah. invented yeah. it, but we don't know who that is. Yeah. Yeah. But the person who invented the concentration camps. He is in a special realm of his own. He is. And yeah. nobody nobody's heard about this guy yeah. except for concentration camp nerds. Uh <laughs> like everyone on this podcast is about to be. Yeah. Uh so yeah, I'll get into it. All right. 
1997, an archaeologist studying Hadrian's Wall in England suggested that he may have found evidence of the first concentration camps in all of history, uh, built for captives from tribes on the other side of the wall and held as a guarantee of good behavior. Other archaeologists suggest these were early refugee camps operated by the Romans to protect people fleeing from a societal breakdown north of the wall. We'll never know for sure. It is possible that various cultures have instituted ideas that kind of were concentration camps for thousands of years. There's no tracing it all the way back. But we can trace the roots of our modern conception of a concentration camp. And they start with Andrew Jackson. What? Yeah. Well, he he didn't invent the concentration camp, but it's important to know this history to understand what comes next. Uh, So Andrew Jackson was born in 1767, seventh president of the United States. His father died in a logging accident. He grew up really poor and really mean. Uh, When he was a kid, he got stabbed in the face and the hand by a British officer because he wouldn't clean the guy's boots. Um, He was a salty dude. Uh, he pers- That's a good reason to be salty, though. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he did have good reason to be salty. <laughs> That's a good reason to yeah. be salty. He was, like, starving for a long time. His dad died when he was real young. Good Lord. Uh, he got shot a bunch. When he was inaugurated as president, there was a bullet in his lung that was what? that was there his whole life. He, he, was, he was just coughing up blood his whole life because he just always had bullets inside of him. He was a tough guy. This should be a great origin story. It is a great origin story. <laughs> and he, he probably killed more human beings personally than any other wow. president. Like, he shot a lot of people personally, not like ordering people to do it. Wow. He almost beat a guy to death with a cane. He was a tough dude, is what we're saying. Uh, we'll probably wind up doing a whole episode on just him at some point. But right now, we're going to talk about uh, his relationship to the Native Americans and how that okay. contributed to the development of concentration camps. So in 1812, Jackson was elected major general in the Tennessee militia because we used to vote on generals back in the day. Mm -hmm. Uh, As you might guess from the year, the War of 1812 was on by this point. Our history books tend to reduce that to just, you know, the White House got burned. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. But it was so much more than that. It was a lot more than that. And there were actually a couple of other wars that were grouped into the War of 1812. Yeah. And one of them was the Red Stick War. Have you ever heard of the Red Stick War? Uh, no, it sounds fun. Does it? Sound, yeah, it sounds it like sounds it like sounds it cute. Be fun. Right? It sounds like yeah. the beginnings of baseball. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we were just hitting each other for years, and yeah. then we realized a ball Let's was a great thing to add. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay, no, it's actually it was a a civil war within the Creek Nation. The Creek are an indigenous people uh, okay. to sort of like the eastish United States area, like southeast of the U.S., like almost all the way down from like parts of like Virginia down to like Florida. So the Creek Nation was a pretty sizable like native nation at this point in time. Um, And the Red Sticks were one faction within the Creek. And their name came from the fact that they carried red war clubs that they Mm -hmm. would beat people to death with Um, because they were pretty tough dudes. And they believed that the best way to defend their land from the encroaching Americans was to murder them. Uh, They were encouraged in this thinking by British agents who wanted to do anything they could to fuck with the Americans during the War of 1812. They would give the Red Creek food and money and stuff and try to get them to fuck with Americans. So a band of these Red Sticks winds up murdering two families of American settlers near Nashville. They were executed by the rest of their tribe, who didn't want any trouble with the Americans, but this wound up provoking a civil war within the Creek Nation. So Jackson and his militia wind up on the side of the creek who didn't like killing settlers, right? Okay. They fight a war with the Red Sticks, so it's like Jackson and most of the creek on one side and the Red red Sticks sticks on on the the other other side. Yeah. And this winds up coming to an end in, like, 1814. So Jackson does so well in the war that he becomes a major general in the Army. He gets put in charge of Tennessee, Louisiana, Mississippi, and the Creek Nation. Uh, This meant that he was in charge when it became time to negotiate a peace treaty at the end of the Red Stick War. Uh, the Madison administration wanted us to be nice to the Creek because they met James Madison didn't want to fuck with them. But right. Jackson was like, fuck these guys. 
because uh, he was a monster. He, yeah, he was a monster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he decides to punish the Red Sticks, and the Creek who'd fought alongside his forces, like all the same. So he just right. takes half of the land of the Creek Nation. Like, so he's the side he fought on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He fucks them over too. He Damn. takes twenty three million acres away from the guys who'd just been fighting 23 with him. Twenty three million acres. How did I? I can't fathom yeah. how back in the day one man could have all that. This is like a Kanye lyric. How could one man have all that power? I, it's it's weird just because he, he didn't die. Like right. that's a big part of it is like yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you it's... survive to be old enough yeah and then you just that's like man like if that's the case fifty cent shit own half of America if for fifty shot nine yeah. times and not dying fifty cent could have been a president in the eighteen hundreds yeah he would have been fucking hard as shit he yeah would've... he was he, that was the main qualification was not dying just when not you were dying shot repeatedly and have a couple of bullets in you yeah Damn. so the creek nicknamed Jackson Sharp Knife. Uh, because he was a he was a dick. Uh, yeah, and Andrew Jackson, you know, gets into politics after he becomes a general. Uh, right. He became a strident advocate for fucking over Native Americans. Mm-hmm. In 1829, he was elected president. In 1830, he championed the Indian Removal Act, uh, which is one of the more sinisterly named laws in American history. 1830, yeah. Okay. And he delivered this message to Congress. Quote, We now propose to acquire the countries occupied by the red men of the South and West by a fair exchange and, at the expense of the United States, to send them to land where their existence may be prolonged and perhaps made perpetual. Doubtless it will be painful to leave the graves of their fathers, but what do they, more than our ancestors did, or than our children are doing now? That's like him being nice about it, Right. He he was mean but eloquent. Yeah, yeah. And he said that this policy was not only liberal but generous to the, the, well, he called them the red man. Yeah. Because it was... The most racist time that's ever been. Yeah. yeah the fucking 1830s U.S. That's like. That's, is that before the emancipation too? Oh, yeah. That's yeah. like. 30, so that's, slaves are still yeah. being yeah. slaves. and Goddamn. Yeah. It's a, it's a dark time in American history. Uh, Jackson, three years later, would deliver another speech where he was even less nice uh, to the Native Americans and basically said that they weren't intelligent enough to have any land in America. And so it was. They must necessarily yield to the force of circumstances and ere long disappear. Like, like they're, they're destined to be screwed uh, because we're screwing them so much. Right. Yeah. This is a dude in yeah. it, It's so crazy. Yeah. It's so crazy how, I know we'll eventually get to this, but how parallel some of these thoughts yeah. are to our current person in power or it's it's insane but yeah yeah well and you know it's it's worth noting that when president trump met with the remaining indian code talkers from world war ii uh-huh. he met them in front of a picture of andrew jackson yes yeah which I caused that, like which that's I, <laughs> I didn't know i heard that was a thing yeah and because i'm lazy i didn't read why it was a thing but now i fucking know this is why what a dick. So Andrew Jackson's Indian removal policy winds up leading to uh, the eviction of natives from the land that he mm-hmm. had sort of said that they had to leave. So his idea was like, we have to push them all into reservations. That was the evolution of this policy. Is we kick them off the land that we want to take, but we'll give them other land. Okay. Um, so this is not quite a concentration camp, but there are aspects of the process that look a lot like stuff you'll see in you know the 20th century. So... The most clear example of that is in 1838, the U.S. Army was sent to evict a bunch of Cherokee who refused to move from the land that they were told to vacate. Uh, So the Army took 17,000 Cherokee and 2,000 of their black slaves because nobody's entirely a good guy in the 1830s, even the people getting (laughs) fucked over. Um, 
and forced them onto camps. Uh, so 300 or so of them died in the camps, and then they get marched into Oklahoma, which is basically one big reservation at that point right. in time. 4,000 Cherokee die on the march to Oklahoma. Yeah, this is the Trail a, of Tears. That's a fucking long march. That is a long march. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever walked from uh, like Tennessee to Oklahoma, but yeah. don't. <laughs> uh, yeah, man. I, I set out to do it, and I was like, after a block, I'm like, this is Ooh. awful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, when the Cherokee arrive in Oklahoma, they're placed on reservations, uh, which is a type of camp designed to concentrate Native Americans into a small area so they can't carry out guerrilla wars against the state. Mm-hmm. This policy continued until 1887 when the government decided that Native Americans had been pretty well beaten and enacted the Dawes Act, which split reservation land up in individual allotments that natives could then sell to white people, which was a bit, basically a way of being like, we'll give you a little bit of cash for your land, and then you don't have land anymore. Right. Um, and then also, did you say that... They had already been well beaten. I mean, yeah, man. Is that like, what they said? It, no, I mean, no, the, it's the, just, it, that's a crazy, it well, worked. I guess we've beat you enough. It, it, it worked is what I'm saying. It's like the Lord. resistance, if you're looking at, and this is important to understand what comes next, if you're a sociopath looking at the U.S. policy against the Native Americans, it worked. Yeah. You know, in the early 1800s, they were a real threat to white people's ability to take over North America. Yeah. And this strategy broke them they broke them if you don't care about human rights or dignity or anything like that it it functioned yeah uh so it's terrible but other people in history would pay attention to the example that the americans set in our policy towards native americans Mm. now we're going to veer off of north america and over to uh spain uh the same year as the trail of tears 1838 also saw the birth of a guy named don valeriano whaler in nicolau uh, he was name. born on the island of Majorca. Yeah, it is a good name. Yeah. A lot of names for people in those days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. not just two or three. Um, so he was born on Majorca, which is a part of Spain. Uh, he grew up with dreams of military glory, but alas, was only four foot ten when he turned 15. <laughs> uh, he enlisted in the Toledo Military Academy. He was below the Spanish military's minimum height requirements, but they let him join anyway because they just finished having a bunch of civil and colonial wars and they didn't have enough soldiers. They were like, oh, it's okay if you're right. tiny. Yeah. Uh, you're <laughs> the door- bullets little adorable guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you won't get shot. Maybe you won't get shot. Um, he wound up actually being really good at army stuff. He earned the nickname <laughs> Scipio from his fellow students, uh, who was Scipio Africanus, was a famous w- Roman general who was okay. really tough, and Whaler had a reputation for being really tough. Okay. Which in those days meant you just didn't get sick and die easily. Yeah. Because like, that was just fucking Europeans, whenever they would go to the colon, like half of them would die from the fever. Yeah. So if you survive that, you're a tough you're a son tough of a guy. bitch. Yeah. yeah, you're a tough guy. So, yeah, Valeriano Whaler uh, wound up sent to Cuba in 1863, where he developed a reputation for being the only colonial officer who wouldn't drink alcohol. Uh, Spanish officers in this time had a habit of drinking nothing but enormous quantities of cold champagne uh, instead of water, because they thought it kept them safe from malaria. Uh, (laughs) Kept them safe, but (laughs) drunk as hell. (laughs) So he drank water, and he was, yeah, he was, which made him popular with the soldiers because they didn't get champagne. And it also, he was probably the only sober Spanish guy on the island. That's why he was so good. That's why I said everybody out there fighting wars drunk. It's a real low bar. (laughs) It's a low bar. He figured it out like, I'm going to stay sober and I'm going to kill a whole bunch of fucking people. I'm just not blacked out the whole time. (laughs) Yeah. So Cuba was a pretty chill place in 1863 from the Spanish point of view. There wasn't any resistance to their rule at that point, or at least not effectively. Whaler's time there started well because he won the Spanish National Lottery and became super rich, uh, which is great. Then he caught the yellow fever, which tried to kill him but didn't quite, uh, and in fact just made him stronger. 
Um, so that would be a benefit for the rest of his life is that he, he wouldn't get yellow fever again. Uh, that fall, as he was recovering from the fever, a war broke out in the nearby Dominican Republic, which was also owned by Spain. Uh, the Dominicans had just been invaded by Haiti, and pretty much as soon as the Spanish threw Haiti back, uh, the Dominicans were like, well, okay, now we want to be an independent nation, and we want Spain gone too. So Whaler got sent over to the Dominican Republic to fight an insurgency against Spanish rule. He became a staff officer and eventually earned a promotion to lieutenant colonel and a bunch of awards for his gallantry. The conflict went great for him because he got a bunch of awards, but mm-hmm. Spain wound up losing control of the Dominican Republic in 1865. Okay. Uh, so Whaler gets transferred over to a Spanish embassy in Washington, D.C., where he caught the tail end of the Civil War and picked up some really cool ideas from America. Uh, mm, I wonder which. Yeah. Now, this is a... Might not be the idea you're expecting. Okay. This is a quote from the book British Concentration Camps, which was a major source for this uh, podcast, and we'll have the link to all the other sources up on the website, uh, behindthebastards.com. So anyway, uh, Whaler winds up in the D.C. Embassy, uh, and he starts reading about the tactics and hearing about the tactics being used by a general named William Sherman uh, in the South. Quote, not only was Sherman an exponent of brutal warfare, burning entire towns to terrify the enemy into submission, he also waged a campaign which some thought amounted to genocide against the Indians. Using as his slogan, the only good Indian is a dead one, Sherman harried the Indians mercilessly, seeing that they were pinned up in camps where they died from starvation and illness. Sherman's activities, both against the Confederacy and the Indians, made a great and lasting impression upon the young soldier who went on to govern several Spanish colonies. So. Wow. Whaler gets sent over to the U.S. and is like, these guys, these guys right. they're good at suppressing people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Whaler gets transferred back to Spain for a little while, but then in 1868, the Cubans decide they're not happy with Spanish rule, and they have a revolution. Yeah. Uh, so Whaler gets sent over to Cuba uh, and fights in what's called the Ten Years' War, which is a war from 60, 1868 to 1878 against the Spanish government. Uh, by all accounts, it was a pretty badass conflict. I'm going to quote here from a book called The War with Spain by Charles Morris that's about the Cuban armies in this time that were fighting against Spain. The strength of the insurgents lay largely in their horses. They were admirable horsemen riding like Cossacks or cowboys and far superior in this respect to the Spanish cavalry, few of whom were trained to the saddle. Many stories are told of the women who rode in their ranks and wielded the machete even more fiercely than the men. And there is little doubt that these stories have some foundation in truth. The favorite mode of fighting by the insurgents was to harass the Spanish troops with skirmish fire in which they sought to pick off the officers by sharpshooting. Then, if the opportunity presented, they would dash forward in a wild cavalry charge, machete in hand, and seek to recapture on the ranks of the foe. Pretty badass. A bunch of ladies with yeah. machetes cutting machetes up guys. On yeah. horses, too. Yeah. Uh, or just in general. I just, yeah, on horses. In, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's it, like Wonder Woman or the Amazons. Yeah. I feel like Danny Trejo could make that into a movie. That He's got great. a production company. Yeah. yeah. You hear yeah. that, Danny? Yeah. A bunch of ladies <laughs> on horses with machetes cutting up Spanish soldiers. Man. Make it happen. Yeah. So Whaler was put in command of a 600-man unit, which he quickly turned into the deadliest unit in the Spanish army. Uh, there were no rules at the time in the Spanish military for how to fight insurgents, so Whaler made up rules of his own, the most important of which was that there were no rules. Uh, his troops were ordered to give no quarter to the enemy. <laughs> the enemy was defined as anyone near a combat area, including civilians. Wow. He became famous for his brutality and was at one point asked, is it true that your men returned from battle holding the severed heads of their enemies by the hair? Whaler replied, what do you think war is? In war, men have only one job, to kill. kill. Yeah, yeah, you predicted yeah, that. How did kill. you call that? Yeah, <laughs> As, you know. You're getting a feel for this guy. I get the feel. I yeah. get the feel. Great minds. Yeah. <laughs> so partway through the war, Whaler gets recalled to Spain because there's a monarchist uprising in Spain. The whole 1800s, Spain is just civil war after fucking civil well, war. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, they'd lost so many territories at yeah. that time, too. It's not a great time. Yeah. 
so yeah, Spain's having like a monarchist uprising. So Whaler goes back to f- help fight it. He has some fighting outside of Valencia, which doesn't go well. But then the general fighting him dies, and that guy's army sort of falls apart. So Whaler kind of wins. And then the government sends him next to Catalonia. Uh, where there's like kind of a leftist workers uprising, and he promptly just murders everyone he suspects of being connected to the rebels. Spanish citizens didn't like seeing the tactics they'd cheered for him to use in Cuba being used on them at home, so General Whaler was reprimanded and removed from that particular. This command. is still a four foot ten dude. This is still four foot. I think he's about four foot eleven. He's now. Four, he grew yeah. an inch. He grew a little bit more, <laughs> but not all inch. that much. Yeah. yeah, he grew an inch off yeah. all the blood he's drawn. He's just standing <laughs> on it. <laughs> Uh, tiny little man just bathing in blood. Yeah. Man. Yeah, he's he's a monster. Uh, so his career for the next few years is kind of up and down. He served as the military governor uh, in the Philippines from 1888 to 1891. What? How did he bounce around so much and just... Well, because they're like, we can't have him in Spain because he's too brutal. Yeah. And people don't like seeing what we do to our colonial possessions being done in Spain. But right. we need a guy to put down insurgencies, and he's fucking good at he's it. He's good at it. So yeah. they just say, he's good at it. You're yeah. in charge here. Come on over. Yeah, yeah. Go crush these insurgents now. So he winds up in the Philippines fighting insurgents. In one four-month campaign, he succeeded in wiping out rebels on the island of Mindano through the use of something called troca, which were fortified military lines built to isolate insurgents. So General Whaler invented a new tactic, which is basically he would fortify towns and villages, and then he would force civilians in rural areas to leave their farms and congregate in those walled rural villages that he'd built. Um, and then he would build these like fortified lines around areas he knew the rebels were in to kind of isolate them. So right. you can pin them into smaller and smaller in. areas. Yeah. Exactly. Force them to fight. Um, this worked out very well. And in November of 1891, Whaler returned to Spain as a newly elected senator. He didn't get to spend much time on the job because a revolutionary workers movement in Catalonia again started threatening to act against the state. Whaler arrested hundreds of them uh, and became very popular among Spaniards who weren't angry working class people. Multiple towns declared him their adopted son. He was made a senator for life and credited with saving civilization from the barbaric workers. Uh, so he's a nice guy. <laughs> so yeah. now he's now go save some lives. <laughs> so uh, this is where we are in 1895 when another revolution breaks out in Cuba. Uh, and we're going to get into that revolution and the birth of the first concentration camps after the break. But before we do that, if you're anything like me, Jaquis, uh-huh. talking about concentration camps makes you really want to purchase products and services. I mean, using I'm, I'm ready to buy some stuff, right? I'm on Amazon right now. Well, let's uh, let's see what things you can buy that are supporting the show. Let's do it. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. My favorite spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. Wow, how have I been living like this? 
It's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless, when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. Wow, how have I been affording this? It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. Say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills, and unexpected overages. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans starting at 15 bucks a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash behind. That's mintmobile.com slash behind. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash behind. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. We are back. Uh, we're talking about General Valeriano Whaler. Uh-huh. Uh, Four foot ten. In case you, in, in case, case you, you said, notice. you know what, I'm coming to listen to the podcast, but I'm starting at minute twenty one. Yeah. yeah. And if I, I want to add, if you're coming in to listen to the podcast and you are a representative of the Doritos Corporation, uh-huh. uh, let me just say we are trying to get sponsorship from Doritos. Listen, uh, I get eternally sad when I walk in this office and there's no Cool Ranch Doritos. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I took the whole bag. I did. Home. And we're talking about revolutionary movements a lot right now, uh-huh. colonialism, and nothing says fighting colonialism like the taste of extreme nacho flavor. <laughs> uh, and I feel like if the Cuban rebels we're about to talk about had had more nacho flavor in their uh-huh. lives, maybe their revolution would have gone better. This is the next uh, Crash the Super Bowl commercial that Doritos <laughs> does. Just set it in. <laughs> set it with General Whaler. Uh, please stop killing us, sir. <laughs> Look, what we, do you have? Doritos. Doritos. <laughs> and then they live in harmony. <laughs> I think you've, yeah, that's a solid Super that's Bowl solid, commercial. It's a deep it. cut. It's you a know. deep cut. It's a deep cut. I think but, it'll do well. Mm-hmm. Speaking of deep cuts. All right. All right. So, uh, yeah, in 1895, uh, when General Valeriano Whaler was 56, Cuban revolutionaries again declared their independence from Spain. The Spanish military leader in charge of Cuba proved unable to contain them, and the government begged Whaler to step in, which he was happy to do, providing the government gave him a free hand to do whatever he wanted in order to suppress the revolution. So in January of 1896, he meets with the Spanish government, and he tells them how he thinks that they can win this war. Mm -hmm. The key would be to relocate the population. Civilians would be forced into camps inside of fortified cities and towns to deny insurgents aid and comfort. He put together a team that included several men who'd served under him in the Philippines and promised them that... 
quote, what we became in the Philippines will serve us well in Cuba. Uh, then he promised the press that he'd have the situation handled in two years. General Whaler arrived in Cuba in 1896, uh, and at this point, the insurgents are like at the gates of the last city. I think it was Havana that the, the Spanish still controlled. So the revolution's gone really well up to this point. He immediately issues the order, all the inhabitants of the country now outside the line of fortifications of the towns shall within the period of eight days concentrate themselves in the town so occupied by the troops. Farmers were not allowed to farm their land, and their homes were often burnt behind them. The camps were poorly built, and most of the houses had no roofs. No provision was made to feed or take care of the captives who were being forced into these walled camps. Whaler had also picked close to the worst locations possible for the camps, usually low-lying, swampy ground that was a perfect breeding area for disease. Yeah. Whaler called this the reconcentration policy. He named the camps reconcentrados. Damn. So. So that's the start. So that's the start. That's These the start. are the first official concentration camps yeah. in in human history, where it's like the you know they're known by that name, and it's the same function. The idea is we're taking people who haven't committed any crime; they're not prisoners of war; they're civilians, yeah. and we're forcing them into camps for some sort of political purpose. Because if yeah. they do uprise. They'll fuck us up. Well, and just because also we're worried, we know that someone is supporting the insurgents. And so right. since we don't know which individual farms are supporting the insurgents, we're going to force all of the farmers into these camps. Gotcha. Just so that there's nobody left to there's support nobody the insurgents. Left to support. Yeah. So uh, by 1898, one third of all Cubans had been moved into concentration camps. Between two and 400,000 of them would die there. Uh, most accurate numbers probably around 320,000. Mm -hmm. Here is a picture of a man looking at a mountain of Cuban bones while wearing a Victorian-era suit. <sighs> Good Lord. We'll have that up on the that, site. It's, it's that's fucked up. That's real? Yeah, that's a real picture of a mountain of Cuban bones. It looks like Charlie Chaplin. Camp. Yeah, it, it looks like Charlie Chaplin sitting on a pile sitting of on bones pile the of size bones. of a house. That's um, sad, man. Yeah, it's, it's messed up. Um, that's so sad. Yeah, yeah. Decent and, mustache, though. Yeah, he looks great. Yeah. <clears throat> he looks like he's on his way to Hollywood. Yeah. So this was a, a bunch of Americans start visiting these camps, uh, including like American senators and politicians and like starting an outrage about it, being like, this is really this fucked is up bad. what's going on. Yeah. yeah. This winds up kind of being later on one of the reasons we get involved in a war with Spain. Like the sinking of the, the Maine was a, a bigger factor. Like outside of Cuba, this battleship of ours explodes and we blame it on the Spanish. Okay. But the Maine is there in the first case and people are already angry at the Spanish for what they're doing what in they're Cuba. Doing yeah. yeah. Uh, so one witness to the camps, an American senator, described them this way. Uh, it is not peace, nor is it war. It is desolation and distress, misery and starvation. Every town and village is surrounded by a troca, trench, a sort of rifle pit, but constructed on a plan new to me, the dirt being thrown up on the inside and a barbed wire fence on the outer side of the trench. These trocas have, at every corner and at frequent intervals along the sides, what are called forts, but what are really small blockhouses, many of them more like a large sentry box, loopholed from musketry and with a guard of from two to ten soldiers each. The purpose of these trocas is to keep reconcentrados in as well as to keep the insurgents out. From all of the surrounding country, the people have been driven into these fortified towns and held there to subsist as they can. They are virtually prison yards and not unlike one in general appearance, except that the walls are not so high and strong, but they suffice, where every point is in range of a soldier's rifle to keep in the poor reconcentrado women and children. So what does that sound like to you? Sounds like... Barbed wire fences, yeah, guards like on the outside, jail and yeah. concentration. Yeah, yeah, it sounds very familiar with like our modern concept what of the concentration camp. Yeah, yeah, which is yeah, 
Yeah. This is where it started. So Whaler's forces and country managed to drive back the insurgents, but the brutality and death of the camps obviously caused an international outcry. Whaler winds up getting recalled to Spain, and of course, during the Spanish-American War, Spain loses control of Cuba. General Whaler uh, wound up living on, though. He continued to fight. He fought in a couple more Spanish civil wars. He had a long career. He died in 1930. How old is he, like 90? 92. Good Lord. One of his last recorded sentences that he ever spoke is reported by a Time Magazine interview was, quote, the good die young. <laughs> what do you want to be? Fuck, what's the dude from Ghostbusters? Uh, oh, Vigo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the Carpathian. Vigo or some yeah. shit. <laughs> he, he fucking was, man. Like, at least he knew what he was. Like, can, you imagine, can you imagine being 92? I'm too young to go. <laughs> oh, no, I, I think he was saying, I'm 92 because I'm a piece of shit. Oh, like, I okay. lasted a long time because I'm a he, monster. I get you. <laughs> I thought he was saying, like, I'm too young to die. <laughs> no. no, I think he was saying, like, I'm fucking old as dirt because okay. I'm the worst person who's ever lived. So he, yeah. so he on his deathbed, he was He uh, knew he was a piece of shit. That's, <laughs> that's what happens when you raise hell all your life. Yeah. And then you're about to die, and you're like, man, I want to get into heaven. All right, I'm saved now. Yeah, probably and shouldn't then- have killed 400,000 people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was a strategic misstep was in a, my heaven yeah. plan. Hey, look, man, I made a mistake. I made a mistake. <laughs> you know, God, if you just pay attention to the last 20 years and ignoring those skull mountains, I did yeah. pretty good. I did pretty good. <laughs> I did know. pretty good. <laughs> Let he who has not built a mountain of bones cast the first bone. Bone? <laughs> in hell. Yeah. Uh, okay. 92. Yeah. So the first reconcentration camps were a political disaster, but they were a military success. Uh, you know, he they, he beat the insurgency almost by the time he got recalled. So, uh, yeah, the first concentration camps work out militarily, not so much politically. But, you know, that's the history. So in 1899, when the British government found themselves fighting a brutal war with the Boers in South Africa, they looked at what Whaler had done in Cuba and they looked at the American reservation system, and they were like, what if we give these things a try? Um, So the Boer people in South Africa were descendants of the original Dutch colonizers who first had stolen South Africa from the actual people who lived there before Dutch people wound up there. Uh, In 1806, the British Empire had taken control of a Dutch South African colony, and the Boers didn't like this. They fled and formed two independent nations, the Republic of the Transvaal and the Orange Free State. They called themselves burgers, which meant citizens and makes reading about them sound delicious. Um, The Boers didn't like the British coming in and Britishizing their home, which was understandable. Nobody enjoyed that. Mm -hmm. They also hated the fact that the British wouldn't let them keep slaves, which is less understandable. Uh, Again, nobody's a good guy. When you go back to these old conflicts, everybody's a piece of shit. What year did we become good? (laughs) 2003. Uh, did we do that? Two, 2003. 2008. Yeah, that's... And then we lost it in 2016. <laughs> we had a good run, though, for a couple of a years there. We had a good run, guys. Yeah. We were really making some strides. Man. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, the two Boer republics and the British South African colony managed to coexist kind of well until 1867 when gold and diamond mines were discovered in the Republic of the Transvaal. Winston Churchill, who was at this time a journalist, felt that this discovery made war between the Boers and the British inevitable. Quote, sooner or later, in a just cause or a picked quarrel, for the sake of our empire, for the sake of the race, we must fight the Boers. So war broke out in 1899, and it went pretty well at first for the Boers. Uh, they beat back some British armies, and they laid siege to some of the British uh, hilariously named cities like Ladysmith, which is... <laughs> this is a great band uh, name. Yeah, yeah. well, it's. I think they're from South Africa, right? <laughs> Ladysmith, Black Mombazo? 
Oh shit, that is a band. Yeah, name. that is a band. Yeah, oh damn, yeah. I assume oh, they're from yes. Ladysmith. They sing, yeah. Uh, what's the song? What's that? What's the their most popular song? That is I don't it? know. I know their name because it's amazing. Okay. Yeah. Hey, well they that, got that's what they got it from. Yeah, they got that. So l- right. listen to Ladysmith Black Mombazo. I will be doing that too. After is it this Black podcast. Horse? No, that's like hoo hoo. Is that it? I don't know. I don't know either. Don't uh, know. Anyway. <laughs> woefully unprepared to joke about Ladysmith. Uh, but it is a fun name for a town. Uh, so yeah, the British Empire obviously was the British Empire, and they eventually mm-hmm. beat these two small uh, Boer armies. And by 1900, the British had conquered all their cities and annexed all Boer territory. Now the normal war became a guerrilla war because the Boers didn't stop fighting just because they lost their cities. They became insurgents. The British commander at this point was a famous guy named Lord Kitchener, who had replaced a general named Roberts, who had replaced a general named Redvers Buller because the place was a silly place. Uh, it was under Kitchener's command that the first Boer concentration camps were established. So Lord Kitchener decided that camps would be, quote, the most effective method of limiting the endurance of the guerrillas, because there were all these little Boer farms mm-hmm. and where the wives and the kids of these soldiers fighting the British army in the field lived. Yeah. And so they would fight the British during the day and then just go home at night and get a cooked meal and sleep in their bed and then get back out into the field. So Kitchener ordered that the women and children should be divided into two categories. One category would be refugees, which was people that they took off their farms that the British didn't know had a relative fighting in the field. Mm-hmm. And the others were the families of Boer soldiers who were commandos. And his idea was to treat the families who didn't have soldiers fighting the British better. But okay. in practice, they all get lumped into the same concentration camps. The Boer camps worked exactly as well as the Cuban ones, by which I mean they became stinking, diseased hell pits where thousands died. Uh, there wasn't enough food, there was no sanitation, and because the British had burnt all of the farms in South Africa, they couldn't really afford to send in any food either. So between June of 1901 and May of 1902, some 28,000 of the 115,000 interned people died in the camps. It was about 10% of all the Boers. 000. Yeah. 22,000 of them were children. Um, wow. 10% of like the Boer population yeah. gets killed in these camps. Yeah. Uh, there were also separate concentration camps the British established for black people caught fighting with the Boers. Mm-hmm. Uh, a 2001 Guardian article I used as a source notes about 20,000 black people also died in other camps and says nothing else about them. So I did why a little bit. Yeah, why, why would it? That's why clearly would, not. Uh, yeah. they, they got slavery. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they got enough written yeah. up about them. As a general rule, the deaths of black people in British concentration camps during the Boer War are treated as an afterthought. Like, So knowledge of what was happening in the Boer War of these camps was brought over by like a couple of British ladies mm-hmm. who were like Red Cross volunteers who saw the camps and went back to England and were like, what we're doing is fucked up. But they would always talk about the concentration camps for the Boers and then like say, I also hear there's camps for black people, but I didn't go visit any of them. Right. But they're probably not nice either. <laughs> um, Can yeah. you imagine... <laughs> Can you imagine this time where all this terrible shit is going on and people are still so racist that they don't it's even amazing. want to go care? <laughs> well, it, it's amazing because you read about how – because the Boer concentration camps were awful and then you're like, yeah. but it was even worse for the black people. Like, Same. how could you make it how worse? How could you make it worse? Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a quote from the book British Concentration Camps that explains okay. how it could be made worse. Okay. Uh, By July 1901, some 38,000 blacks were being held in special camps, over 30,000 of them being women and children. Thousands of black men were taken into the service of the army, where others were sent to work the gold mines. The white camps were provided with tents, however leaky and drafty these may have been. Nothing of the sort was thought necessary for the blacks who were expected to build their own dwellings. So... You've got about 115,000 Boers in camps, who of whom 28,000 die, and you've got about 
38,000 black people in camps, about 20,000 of whom die. On the upside, eventually, word of the nightmarish conditions in the concentration camps did escape South Africa and caused a wave of condemnation. Uh, The British put a guy named Lord Milner in charge of cleaning it up and trying to save the people who'd been put into camps. His notes about this period of time wound up getting found just a couple of years ago, and they give you real insight into, like, the British imperial mentality over their own war crimes. I'm going to read this in a British-y voice, so that'll make it more fun. It is impossible not to see, however blameless we may be in the matter. We shall not be able to make anybody think so, and I cannot avoid an uncomfortable feeling that there must be some way to make the thing a little less awfully bad if one could only think of it. All right. I I just love the idea that, like, there must be some way to make this a little less bad if we can only think of it. Don't put people in camps. Yeah. (laughs) Don't put people in concentration camps. That's That's the way. That's pretty much it. Don't burn their farms. Yeah. (laughs) It's very simple, Uh, actually. Yeah, just uh, like people. Yeah. Uh, He noted that, you know, when he first got there in, like, 1902, they'd hoped that, like, all the weak kids had died first, so people would stop dying, but they didn't stop dying. And, yeah. Anyway. So the Boer concentration camps were horrible PR. Uh, just as General Whaler's camps in Cuba had been, but they were effective from a military standpoint. The British beat the Boers. This led the idea of concentration camps to spread like wildfire across the empires of the 20th century. So, in 1915 and 16, during World War I, the Ottoman Turks got up to a little bit of genocide against the Armenians. They killed probably around 1.5 to 2 million of them in total. Uh, The Turkish government still claims this didn't happen. The U.S. does not officially recognize it as a genocide because we need our military bases in Turkey. Right. Uh, but it definitely happened. Yeah, There's... 1.5. <laughs> yeah, 1.5 million. To two, damn. Yeah, something like that. Generally, 1.5 is sort of the accepted middle ground. It might have been higher. It might have been a little, a little lower, lower. But some somewhere around a million and a half people. Um, and there was a mix of ways. A lot of them were killed through mass executions. A lot of them were killed through starving and forced marches. Most of them died in what was essentially a reverse trail of tears. So you remember the trail of tears? They started in a concentration camp. Right. And they got marched to a reservation. Mm-hmm. And most people died during the march. They flipped that. Um, they flipped that. So they marched people down to a desert uh, around a town called Dier Azur. And most of the people died marching toward the desert, like something like a million people died on the march just from executions. They weren't given food. They weren't given water. It's like the Syrian desert. walk thousands of miles. And then when they arrived at Deir Azor, they were put into a gigantic open-air concentration camp near the town. Uh, They were forbidden food or water and had to bribe their guards to get anything. Uh, roughly 400,000 people died in this open-air concentration camp. It was so many people died that a visitor to the area in 2002 noted, I was shown a piece of land that keeps subsiding. It is called the Place of the Armenians. So many thousands of bodies were buried there that the ground has been sinking for the last 80 years. Human thigh bones and ribs come to the surface. Um, Yeah, it's bad. Real bad. A monument this is, was, this yeah. is our world. <laughs> yeah. This is the birth of the modern world. This is yeah. about a century ago. Yeah. Um, and uh, very important for what comes next because people were paying it. Again, like the main figures of the 20th century were paying attention to all of this. They were paying attention to yeah. America's policy with the Native Americans. They paid attention to Cuba, to the Boer War, and to what happened with the Armenians. Yeah. Um, so a monument was built for the Armenian genocide in Deir Azor. ISIS destroyed it in 2014. Um, hopefully it'll be rebuilt at some point. Um, the main architect of the Armenian genocide was a guy named Talat Pasha. He was one of the young Turks who'd risen to power in Turkey during a 1913 coup. 
after World War I, he fled to Germany to escape prosecution for his war crimes. He was shot dead in Berlin in 1921 by Sagaman Talirian, an Armenian who lost his extended family in the genocide. Sagaman's trial brought knowledge of Turkish war crimes and German complicity in them into the public eye. He was acquitted. The German courts at the time were like, well, of course you shot that guy. He fucking, he was terrible. Mm -hmm. And he was like carried out of the courtroom on people's shoulders, which is (laughs) the only happy story we're going to have on the podcast today. So savor this one. (laughs) For he's a jolly good fellow. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So if you want, you can kind of view, and I think it's often interesting to look at ideas as sort of like a virus, because you can kind of trace yeah. their spread around empires throughout history. Mm-hmm. And if you view the idea of concentration camps as a virus, you can watch it spreading, you know, from the germs of the idea to Cuba and then to the Boers and then to the Armenian genocide. And then Talat Pasha brings it to Germany yeah. in the 1920s, just That's in time one for World War knows. II. Yeah. So, you know what goes great with a podcast about sad things? Uh, what? Happy things, like the wonderful people who support this show. Oh. Yeah. Let's listen. Mm-hmm. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild minigames. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. All right, we are back, and we are talking about concentration camps. Oh, man. I'm trying to think of a cute name for that, but uh, focus camps. Focus camps. Concentration that sounds even camp. worse. That does sound worse. <laughs> yeah. uh, imagination camps. Imagination camps. Uh, that's actually scarily close to what we're actually calling the ones that we built for those kids. <laughs> oh yeah, the tender uh, tender age, age camps. camps. Yeah. Well, 
yeah, we, we probably don't have to fly over We'll it. get there eventually. We're in, we're in 1921 now. We're 1921. So, as I just said, the guy who orchestrated the mass open-air concentration camp in the desert that killed all the Armenians gets shot in Berlin in 1921. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the virus is passed on to the next nation that mm-hmm. will use it. Uh, I'm not going to go into an in-depth history of Nazi concentration camps here. I'm going to hope most of you know that. If most not, it, it really deserves its own focus thing. Yeah. But uh, I will read a couple of quotes that point out just how, because I think one of the mistakes that a lot of education on concentration camps makes is that it overemphasizes how exceptional they are historically, which is important to do to some extent, because no one has ever killed so many people so quickly as the Germans did in those camps. Mm-hmm. But... They're part of an intellectual tradition that we've been tracing throughout the length of this podcast. And it's important to understand that at the time, the Germans justified what they were doing to themselves and to the world by the fact that all of their enemies in these conflicts had had also done it. Exactly. It's almost like... Well, you can't tell me I can't do it. When Only you, you get to have concentration to camps? Yeah. 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 So here's a quote from Adolf Hitler, The Definitive Biography by Pulitzer Prize winner John Totland, which is a fantastic book if you're wanting to read about Hitler. Um, quote, Hitler's concept of concentration camps, as well as the practicality of genocide, owed much, so he claimed, to his studies of English and United States history. He admired the camps for Boer prisoners in South Africa and for the Indians in the Wild West, and often praised to his inner circle the efficiency of America's extermination by starvation and uneven combat of the red savages who could not be tamed by captivity. So the German government in the pre-war years would generally use the Boer Wars camps as an excuse for their own camps. Here is a quote from the book British Concentration Camps. In February 1939, for example, Sir Neville Henderson, British ambassador to Germany, had a meeting with Hermann Goering. In the course of their encounter in Berlin, Henderson denounced the loathsome and detestable brutalities taking place in the concentration camps such as Dachau and Buchenwald. For answer, Goering went to a bookshelf and took down the volume of a German encyclopedia covering the letter K and showed the ambassador the entry for Konzentrationslager, which began first used by the British in the South African War. Throughout the 1930s, Minister for Propaganda Joseph Goebbels had also fostered the notion that concentration camps were a British invention. Postcards purporting to show the grim conditions of the camps run by the British during the Boer Wars were circulated. A film, Om Paul, was subsidized by the German government. This historical drama about the Boer War suggested that the British Army had devised and operated the first concentration camps, which we know wasn't entirely true. The Cubans had, but... This but, is how the Germans are justifying themselves. Yes. With the Boer War and with the Americans. You did it. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone else has done it. Uh, Hitler is also known to have stated during his run-up to the invasion of Poland when they were talking about getting rid of the Polish Jews mm-hmm. and people brought up, like, this is going to cause an international outcry. A sentence he famously is credited to have said is, who now speaks today of the Armenians? Who, so Say that again. Who now speaks to the day of the Armenians? So people were like, "What well, if we try to get rid of all the Jews in Poland, people are going to be angry at us. And Hitler was like, why do you think anyone's going to get pissed off? Do you hear yeah. anyone yelling about the Armenians? Nobody's talking about the Armenians. Nobody, nobody's angry at Turkey for what they did. Nobody won't care yeah. about that until 2017 exactly. when they had their parade in Los Angeles. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, it's it, so sad. Yeah, and it causes international outrage, which, yeah. it, like, you can't, you still, to this day, it's very difficult to film a documentary about the Armenian genocide. There was a famous book that came out, I think, in the 30s or 40s, about, there's this one group of Armenians who, like, hold up on top of a mountain and fought off the 
Ottoman army until mm-hmm. like a French warship rescued them. And it was this crazy story that people have tried to make into a movie a couple of times. And every time the Turkish government will come in and say like, we Stop. won't take any movies from America, period. No one will be able to run movies in our country. No Hollywood studio if you make this if movie. If you make this movie. Yeah. So and it's, it's amazing how cowardly. Yeah, yeah we all uh, are. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even Barack Obama, before he was elected president, talked about the Armenian genocide and acknowledged it as a genocide. And then as president, he continued the U.S. line of denying it ever happened. Not denying it ever happened, but, but we won't it. call it a genocide. Yeah, we won't call it. Because yeah. we need those bases. Because we can't bomb the Middle East without our bases in Incirlik, which is where we have our bases in Turkey. So... From the Hitler point of view, I think it's important just to understand while the German concentration camps, and particularly the death camps, because they weren't all they weren't all the same kind of right. Camp. They were different types yeah. of camps. Yeah, because people died in all of the camps, but mm-hmm. some of the camps, their purpose was not to kill people. Right, people just died there because the Germans there. didn't give them a shit. And then, like Auschwitz had concentration camps in it where people, the point wasn't execution. The point was a labor camp. Yeah, it also had extermination camps in it, but it was a gigantic facility. This so, is sad, yeah. but the when I because uh, you like you said people know about that, but I was one of the people who lumped it all in. I mm-hmm. just think, oh, it's just a place where they killed a whole bunch of people. Yeah, and the movie that made me actually challenge that was X Men: The Last or the the mm. First Class in the beginning of that movie when Magneto's mom got taken away from him, and they were supposed to be in concentration camps. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken. I was like, they all. Don't look like they're there to die. Yeah, uh, and you know, and but they were taking her away to go to the death camp. Yeah, to the death camp. And part. so that yeah. made me look into it. Like, oh wow, there were multiple camps. Well, that's good. Yeah. That's, so that's thank, you, pu- yeah. Yeah. thank you, X Men. Yeah. Thank you, X Men, for helping X-Men. to spread some good history there. I guess. Yeah, yeah. That's that's what made me look into yeah. it. Yeah. And it's important to understand. Like, it is important because I used to before I dropped out of school. The last two years was spent on like Holocaust studies. Like that was mm-hmm. the thing that I did in college. And um, there, it's very important, particularly to Jewish scholars of the Holocaust, to emphasize how unique the Holocaust was, and that is important because nothing quite like it has ever happened. But it's also, I think, important to understand that it's the middle of a long intellectual tradition. Yeah. Like, the Germans were pointing to other examples in history when they carried out they got the it Holocaust. From somewhere. They got it from somewhere. They, yeah. It didn't come out of nowhere. Um, and I think that's important. They looked at it and was like, we'll make it bigger. Yeah. Better. <laughs> More German. More German. <laughs> yeah. Um... It's also important to understand that the Germans were not the only people using concentration camps yeah. in World War II. Uh, the Japanese internment camps in America yeah. were a type of concentration right, shit, camp. Right in Griffith Park. Right in Griffith Park. Yeah. Um, they were not as brutal, obviously, as the Nazi camps, but 1,862 people are known to have died in our Japanese concentration camps, uh, some of them from disease, some were old people from heart attacks, but some people were shot by American soldiers. Um, we tend to use the term internment camp now, and that appears to be the result of a successful propaganda campaign to separate what we did to the Japanese Americans yeah. from what the Nazis did to Jewish Germans. At the time, though, that the camps were proposed, FDR used the term concentration camp to describe mm-hmm. what we were doing. And in 1946, Harold Ike, former Secretary of the Interior, said this. As a member of President Roosevelt's administration, I saw the United States Army give way to mass hysteria over the Japanese. Crowded into cars like cattle, these hapless people were hurried away to hastily constructed and thoroughly inadequate concentration camps, with soldiers with nervous muskets on guard in the great American desert. We gave the fancy name of relocation centers to these dust bowls, but they were concentration camps nonetheless. 
This was not America's last flirtation with concentration camps. And no, I'm not talking about the camps we've built for immigrant children in the desert. We're not even there yet. Mm -hmm. The USA actually tried out the whole concentration camp idea again before that point. In 1961 and 62, the U.S. government began to execute what was called the Strategic Hamlet Program in Vietnam, which sounds nice. Like the Hamlet, Hamlet, Hamlet. That's a cute word. Yeah, oh, Hamlet. Yeah, yeah. Strategy's a not Hamlet, a bad term. A little yeah. piggy or the king. Yeah, yeah, well, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's cute. The basic idea was to fortify certain towns, to wall them off, and to make them defensible in order to isolate communist guerrillas from local support. Locals who lived outside these towns would be relocated inside the walls. Does that sound familiar at all? Mm-hmm. Sound like something Sounds Cuba was getting up to? Yeah, um, exactly. But, yeah, exactly. Uh, it was not as that bad, right? Uh, right. But it was pretty awful. Large numbers of peasants were forced from their homes. Many watched as their houses were burnt behind them. Some peasants were executed by South Vietnamese forces. Although we have no death toll for this program as we do for the other camps. Here is a quote from a U.S. military report on one of these strategic hamlets. Unfortunately, the government was able to talk only 70 families into relocating into the new hamlet. Another 135 families were forced out of their homes and into the new settlement. Some came with meager belongings. Many had only the clothes on their backs. Their old homes were burned behind them to preclude their sneaking back. Uh, It didn't work. Uh, I don't know. This might be a spoiler alert, but Vietnam did not end well for us. Uh, No, it didn't. Or South Vietnam. Uh, And this was a big factor. So, number one, it convinced a lot of Vietnamese people to join the Viet Cong. Yeah. Because they're like, well, you just fucking burnt my house down. I don't don't like you anymore. Yeah. I hate you. Um, And it was also like, what started the escalation in the fighting? Because in 1961, when the Strategic Hamlet program started, the North Vietnamese wouldn't attack American military bases. Okay. Um, they were considered no-go zones because they didn't want to escalate shit with us. Yeah, we, um, we had a large military. Yeah, we're terrifying. Yeah. Uh, they avoided attacking American troops for the most part, but that ended in 1965 after a few years of this policy. Um, now, that Defense Department report that I read stated the inspiration for the Strategic Hamlet program came largely from the British responses to the Malayan Emergency uh, from 1948 to 1960. Have you ever heard of the Malayan Emergency? No. You ever heard of the British colony in Malaya? I have that. Yeah, I, I hadn't even heard of that when I started yeah. this, so you're, you're ahead of me in that regard. Yeah, I've heard it in school, actually. Okay. Yeah. Well, you had a good school then, because I didn't even know they'd fucking been in, in what's modern-day Malaysia at that yeah. point. So um, the Malayan emergency is interesting, because it might be the one case, it's the only case I've read about, where concentration camps actually worked out really well for everybody, including the people inside of them. It's a weird mm-hmm. case study, uh, mm-hmm. but it's important to cover. So Malaya was a British colony, yeah. uh, bad economic programs uh, brought on by bad British policies post-World War II led to a communist uprising. Uh, It's called the Malayan Emergency and not the Malayan Civil War uh, due to lobbying from British business owners in Malaya because their insurance wouldn't cover war. So that's why it's the Malayan Emergency. Right. Because, like, yeah. (laughs) It's just wacky. Yeah. Um, So the British called the people fighting them communist terrorists. Uh, They were groups of Chinese people living in Malaya who had been trained and armed by the British in World War II to fight the Japanese Mm -hmm. um, and who then turned their guns on the British when, you know, World War II ended. Right. uh, Which doesn't sound like anything that's ever happened. (laughs) Again. Yeah. yeah. That was the last time uh, Western power would 
have that happen to them. Right. Um, so the emergency kicked off when a group of communists executed three British farmers. This prompted the colonial government to suspend all civil liberties and arrest suspects for up to two years prior to charging them. Despite their harsh methods, the emergency did not go great for the British at first. Their main opponent was a guy named Chin Peng, who was a 26-year-old bicycle shop owner, and apparently bicycle shop owning and running an insurgency are two hand traits. Hand in hand. That, yeah, work really well yeah. together. Yeah. You can well, fix one a qualifies for the other. <laughs> you can fix a tire, you can... <laughs> Bomb a military convoy. Yeah. Um, and then get away on your bike. Yeah. So for a while, uh, the Chinese insurgents were winning, but in 1950, uh, Lieutenant General Harold Briggs came up with a plan to eliminate the insurgency. So the communist forces during this emergency were largely Chinese, uh, and they received most of their support from ethnic Chinese squatters who lived in slums outside the main Malayan cities. Now, these people, the squatters, had no title to their land, so they didn't own anything, and they had no sense of investment in the cities around them or in Malaya as a as a community because right. they were just considered squatters. So Briggs's plan was to build walled and fortified villages and move some 400,000 squatters into them. Uh, based on everything I've talked about today, you might have expected it to end in disaster, mm-hmm. but it didn't. Uh, the camps they built were like large. They were made out of concrete. They had electricity, clean drinking water, schools and clinics. And the British government gave the people brought there title to the land. So wow. it made all 400,000 of these people landowners. Okay. Uh, and it worked. And um, so it, yeah. So it's only, it's only that by name then. I mean, it's a concentration camp. It is the same thing, but it's the most humane execution it's the of that humane plan. of it. Yeah. Yeah. And How it, many people died? Did, did you say that? Did I miss that? There How were many? definitely some people who died, but there's no like there, there's no evidence of like large scale yeah, starvation and dying. disease. Yeah. But yeah, like, like the British did execute people in the course of the right, war. Right. I'm not going to claim that like they were blameless in this. There was at least one case where they killed a lot, like 20 something civilians. But it's compared to everything else on this list, it's by it's, far the most humane execution of the plan. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it, it did, a lot of Malayans were made angry because they didn't like the Chinese squatters or whatever, but the insurgency eventually stopped, and a lot of the people who were put into these, what were called new villages, seemed to think it was a positive step, because now they owned land and they had electricity and clean water and stuff. Right, right. Um, so if the British got concentration camps right in Malaya, if that is fair to say, uh, it's probably because they had more practice than any other people on the planet at running concentration camps. Um, you've heard the expression that if you've got a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yeah. Well, if you've got the British Empire, every problem looks like it needs a concentration camp built around it. Um, wow. The British used concentration camps, like I said, more than anyone else probably in history. Uh, more than I had ever heard before I started researching this. Yeah. Um, I, you don't even... I, that's not something that you even fathom. Yeah, or you, you don't I, connect... Yeah. When you, you hear concentration it. camp, you think Germans, you think for Germany. sure. And you know, I mean, yeah, some yeah. people know about the ones that popped up in other countries and things like I knew about the one here in America. I heard about one in Spain. Yeah. But not to the scale that this was... You know, like the World Cup, and it just happened every four years or some shit. The or... British put them everywhere, including on their own soil. So wow. during World War I, uh, the British built concentration camps for German citizens who had been captured on boats or who had just happened to be in England when the war started. Many of these people were forced to labor in British fields. The book British Concentration Camps points to an article in The Guardian from December 4th, 1914, titled Disorder at Lancaster Concentration Camp. Here's a quote from the book. 
The disorder at Lancaster Concentration Camp was dealt with by a bayonet charge against unarmed civilians. On 19th November that same year, protests at another concentration camp on the Isle of Man resulted in troops firing volleys of shots at the inmates, killing six of them. Among the dead were two men who had, until three months earlier, been working as waiters in hotels. Later in the war, the British established the Frongot concentration camp in an abandoned factory. More than 2,000 Irishmen were held there. In 1940, with fears of a German invasion stoking panic, Winston Churchill had every German and Austrian in the country arrested and sent to concentration camps. Here's another quote from that book. To those who reminded him that many of these people were Jewish refugees, he responded briefly and memorably, "Collar the lot. Of course, no one wanted to call these new institutions concentration camps, so they renamed them internment camps to differentiate them from the Nazis' practice. Hmm. So the British were keeping concentration camps that included Jewish refugees on British soil and forcing them to labor in British fields the entirety of World War II. Wow. There were also Polish concentration camps that existed in Poland prior to the German invasion. And when the Germans conquered Poland, a bunch of Polish soldiers, like 20,000 of them, and the Polish government were exiled to the United Kingdom. The UK gave them a bunch of land in Scotland, which was essentially treated as sovereign territory for the government in exile. And the Poles built concentration camps in Scotland to house political dissidents, including Jewish political dissidents. Wow. Yeah, multiple Jewish prisoners were executed in Polish concentration camps in Scotland during World War II. More than 300,000 people were imprisoned and forced to farm in England up until 1947. While Nazi concentration camp guards were on trial in Nuremberg, the British were using forced civilian labor housed in concentration camps to harvest their crops. This this is (laughs) modern-day slavery. Modern-day slavery and... Murder. I, I could go on. Yeah, there, yeah. It's just uh, it's insane, man. We may do a whole podcast someday on just British concentration camps. Yeah, that book, it seems like they it's insane. were the champions of the world. Yeah, they, they are the World Cup winners of putting people in camps. Yeah, yeah. good lord, man. Yeah, and there are hundreds of examples from other countries. I, I didn't even get into the French regroupment camps in Algeria, into which more than a million Muslim villagers were forced to move. There were Spanish concentration camps in the Canary Islands. Uh, the 20th century was the century of concentration camps. And now it looks like the 21st might wind up being one too. I mean, Uh, look, dude, yeah, (laughs) that's that's the sad part is, you know, so here's the thing that's crazy to me, Mm -hmm. especially a lot of the stuff we were talking about earlier, uh, where you have, where you you know a lot of these generals and a lot of these people by name, Mm -hmm. like General Whaler, they were... Just he- not heroes, but they were like champions of what they did, yeah. right? And how that's kind of changed today. Like you don't know a single person's name when they're fighting in war. You don't know one person's name from yeah. the Iraqi War or something like that. Well, Maybe it, you do, but nothing it, like a general whaler who was on the battlefield fighting and shit like that. Well, and it's just so much more diffuse now. Like you'll notice yeah. that when it started out, when we start talking about the reservations, there are individual people like Andrew Jackson. Right. We can talk about what the role they played. We can talk about General Whaler. We can talk about Talat Pasha. But the more camps there are, that we stop hearing names just hearing because names it's, it's not just any one guy's idea it's, it's a way of culture it's what you do exactly it's culture it's part of western culture is putting people into camps and that's the sad part yeah except now 
is becoming a name again. <laughs> yeah, and now we have some concentration camps in South Texas. Uh, these camps did not start out as part of a war, but they did come out about as an attempted solution to a real problem. Mm-hmm. Some of this may be familiar to you. You've been keeping up with the news, but in May of 2012, um, less than 1,000 people traveling as families were caught by Border Patrol, right? Mm-hmm. By May of 2014, that number had increased to 12,800. Uh, the numbers have subsided since then, less than, I think, 10,000 last year. But it's still a big issue. And this is not something that we've ever – like, illegal immigration has been a thing that has happened right. for forever. Families coming as groups is a new thing. And, you know, they're largely coming because of political instability. You you could call them refugees, although we call them asylum seekers. Yeah. There's a, it, whether or not someone's an asylum seeker or refugee depends on the country of origin. It's like a, it's like a legal term. Um, the Obama administration tried holding entire families while their cases were pending, but that's illegal because of a court case, I think, from 1997, which says that you can't hold children in immigration detention. You have to release them to the least restricted means available. The Obama administration did not want to be seen as cutting families apart, so they often would just release people. Mm-hmm. Uh, this became politicized and talked about by Republicans as, quote-unquote, catch-and-release policy. And the yeah. Trump administration did not want to continue catch-and-release policy. Uh, the result was that between October 1st, 2017 and May 31st, 2018, 2,700 children at least were separated from their parents. That's roughly an average of 45 per day. Uh, these children were put in the least restrictive surroundings available to the government. In many cases, that wound up being tender age shelters, which you've seen on the news mm-hmm. and maybe heard the audio of. Uh, First Lady Laura Bush compared these shelters to the internment camps for Japanese Americans in World War II. They are, however, concentration camps, as were the internment camps. Mm -hmm. Uh, The people in them have committed no crimes and are not prisoners of war. The Los Angeles Times described one of these facilities, known as Ursula, the kids inside it call it La Pereira, or dog kennel, uh, as clean and spare with bare concrete floors. The facility is cleaned three times daily in order to avoid the concentration camp becoming the disease-ridden kind of hellhole that most concentration camps in history have become. Um, a Democratic congressman who visited the site said it was nothing short of a prison. Jacob Soboroff, a journalist who visited, stated, I was inside the building and there are babies sitting by themselves in a cage with other babies. That's, that's inhumane. Yeah, it's It's inhumane. And I, think, yeah. and I think what people who are not outraged by this, uh, their idea is probably what we were saying earlier, how they think concentration camp only means yeah. death, death camp. camp. And, exactly. you know, putting people in ovens. And we're and, clearly not but, doing that. And we're but, clearly not doing that, but you got, uh, you got human beings and ca- children yeah, in, in cages. cages. You're ripping them from their families. They're sleeping on concrete. Like, they're not prisoners, and they're yeah. being treated yeah. worse than prisoners. They have committed not worse, no but, crime. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that is emphasized constantly by the uh, government personnel who are taking care of these places when journalists will go on tours of them so far is how clean they are, how often they are cleaned, that they're medical personnel and whatnot. And that is true. Like, I can't imagine there's not going to be a typhoid outbreak in one of these places. It's not going to be tuberculosis (laughs) popping off. But one thing that is consistent among all the concentration camps pretty much that we've covered today is that they are breeding grounds for disease. And while these camps that we're building in Texas that we put these kids in, they're not going to be breeding grounds for physical diseases. There's a lot of evidence that they will be breeding grounds for mental and emotional diseases. Oh, yeah. So You're fucking these people. Yes. You are irrevocably messing these children's minds up. 
Shane O'Mara is a neuroscientist in Dublin. Uh, he's conducted studies on how things like torture affect the human brain. I interviewed him once uh, back in the day for an article I was writing, and I follow him on Twitter now. When the stories about these child concentration camps broke, he posted a thread summarizing all of the research into how separating young children from their parents and putting them in institutions damages kids. I'll have a link to the Twitter thread on our website. He cites a lot of different sources. I'm only going to talk about one of those right now, which uh, it was a Scientific American article about the largest study ever performed on a group of institutionalized children who had been separated from their parents. Um, this came from back in the late 1960s. The Romanian dictator Nicolae Ceausescu decided his country needed more of what he called human capital, which is mm -hmm. people. Um, so he banned birth control and abortion and created a celibacy tax for families with less than five children. Government minstrel police examined women to make sure they were putting out enough babies. Uh, it was a huge success in terms of the amount of babies increased in Romania, mm -hmm. but Romanians didn't have enough money to support their multiple football teams worth of children. So by 1989, more than 170,000 kids had been handed over to government institutions and separated by their parents. Uh, this is terrible, but studying those children provided researchers an opportunity to learn what separating kids from their families and putting them in an institution does to developing minds. Uh, I'm going to quote from a Harvard summary of the actual study. The study found that institutionalized children were severely impaired in IQ and manifested a variety of social and emotional disorders, as well as changes in brain development. However, the earlier an institutionalized child was placed into foster care, the better the recovery. Now, the president's recently promised to put an end to his policy of separating families. It's unknown how this is going to work since there's a bunch of problems with the idea of keeping whole families in detention. That's what the Obama administration ran into. Right. Uh, so we don't really know what's going to happen. Um, hopefully no more kids will be separated from their families, but there's also the case of the 2,700 children who have been, and we don't know how many of those are going to be put back in touch with right. their families. When he signed that law, yeah, uh, everybody got excited, but it was not too... It doesn't solve Reunite the problem. Reunite yeah. the children. Yeah. Yeah. And in most cases, it really wasn't for anything. Yeah, and it's... it's uh, I mean, the, the broader problem is that we continue to have, like, none of these people that we're putting in camps, because we're putting the adults in detention centers, too. Yeah. And the adults are not criminals. They're um, not criminals. They're asylum seekers. They're people who are fleeing war. And in, in a lot of cases, like the people coming from Guatemala and El Salvador, those are civil wars that exist in part because the United States funded and supported the civil war mm -hmm. beginning. Uh, exactly. There's a genocide that's been going on off and on in Guatemala for decades that we funded and supported. Yeah. And we executed the president who led to the creation of the Civil War because we killed that guy. And, like, that's a big part of this history. So, like, there's – whether or not the kids continue to be kept in separate camps, we will continue to be putting families in concentration camps. Yeah. Um, and I think it's worth noting that very rarely in my research did I come across a case where concentration camps were used by a country who won the conflict that those camps were built in order to establish. Mm -hmm. The British-Malayan camps worked out all right, but the British lost control of Malaya, and they lost the rest of their empire. Mm -hmm. The Spanish lost Cuba. The Germans lost everything. Uh, concentration camps achieve their short-term goals. They rarely work out in the long run, with the exception of the United States. Wow. So wow, <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe we're that, that that beacon on the hill. We're number one. Yeah, we're number one in something. Putting people in camps and getting away with it. Yeah, that's what power does, man. Yep. That's what power and money and having a big ass military does. Well, and an ocean in between you and everybody else, except for like Canada. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. This is. I mean, <laughs> this is depressing. Uh, mm -hmm. what floor are we on? 
No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> it's depressing, man, because, you know, I think this is something that a lot of people our age uh, or in our generation, we've we've put this out of our history. Yeah. Uh, not out of our history, but it's not something that we think about. We only hear about one kind of concentration camp. And that's and Germany. That's yeah. Nazi Germany. And it's yeah. isolated in time. There yeah. were four bad years. Yeah. And then it like, didn't happen again or before. <laughs> And it's sad, you know, it's a little sad that people don't know that it's happened before, and to hear that it's still happening because you yeah. think we've gotten better, yeah, we haven't. No, and I mean, I guess it. You obviously nothing that anyone has done since has been as bad as the Nazi death camps. Yes. But that's a low bar to that's say very that we're doing bar. better because we're not yeah. exterminating people. That's a very low bar. Yeah. Uh, I, I, yeah, man, I don't, I don't, I don't understand. You know, I, I asked this question before: Are people inherently good, or yeah. are they inherently bad? And you hear shit like this, and you're just like, huh? <laughs> like, I mean, I think the answer is people aren't inherently good or inherently bad. People yeah. are inherently the products of their culture. Yes, and if your culture is one that allows, for example, slavery, then people who today might be good people would think slavery is fine because they grew up in 1840s America. Yeah. And most people we know who lived in America in the 1840s weren't abolitionists. Mm-hmm. Um, or how we redefine what these things mean. Yeah. Uh, these things don't go away. Slavery hasn't gone away. Yeah. Yeah, we're not in chains and being whipped and sold and, and you know, all that shit. But uh, there are people out there still trying to figure out ways to keep people enslaved in yeah. different ways. Uh, more palatable ways. More palatable ways. It's like we have them work in prisons yeah. as opposed to plantations, and that's not gross to people because they did something. They we did can say something. they did a thing. They did yeah. a bad thing. Just like, well, it's not wrong that we're putting these asylum seekers in camps because they broke the law. They broke the law. They broke the law. They're trying to they cross our imaginary border. Which is like, well, I mean, if you were holding a Jewish family in Amsterdam in 1943 and hiding them from the Germans, you were breaking the law. Yeah. Breaking the law is more often a right thing than a wrong thing, historically. Yeah. Like, or at least it's 50-50. I mean, you know, I said this on Culture Kings. I think we could, well, I don't know when this is going to drop, but I said this uh, on one episode. Um... That without ethics, laws mean nothing. Yeah. Because just because it's a law, it, uh, 50, 60 years ago, it, it was against the law for me to date my girlfriend. <laughs> you know, it was against the Jesus. law. Yeah. But, you know, that I don't want to hear this laws bullshit because yeah. that without ethics, laws mean nothing. And that's something I try to remember. Like you say, 50, 60 years ago. And the, the way I like to think about it is, I walked past someone on the street today who can remember when it would have been illegal for you to date your girlfriend. Yeah. Like that, they're, they're around, yeah, yeah. yeah. I it's, mean, like, yeah, are are there many survivors still mm-hmm. left? Not many, there's mm-hmm. a few, but people don't understand that the, the connection is still there. Uh, even if my grandmother doesn't remember slavery, mm-hmm. for instance, somebody very close to her immediate family does. Yeah. Yeah, they're passed away, but that connection is still there. Her mom had a mom who was a slave. Yeah. Or somebody who was in those death camps had somebody connected to their generation or connected to their family who was in there. And the fact that we don't learn from that shit and we don't try to change and we aren't uproarious 
we should like the, I I don't even I can't even really put it into words how yeah. upsetting it is. And I think there's a mistake. I think when people fight against this stuff, which any kind of thing you're trying to do to fight against this fucking policy in the border is good. But I think people focus too much on changing the laws, which it doesn't. It's the culture it's the that culture. has, and it's that's why I think the people who are doing stuff like up in Portland, blockading the ICE headquarters and stopping the ICE employees from leaving at night to see their families Mm -hmm. or chasing down the Department of Health and Human Services secretary at a Mexican restaurant or finding Stephen Miller when he's eating in a Mexican, and like screaming at them and calling them like, that almost does more good than fighting. Like obviously it's important to fight in the courts and stuff, but making it clear that as a culture, we're not fucking cool with this. That's the most important thing. Yeah. Because the, everything spawns from the culture. And when yeah. we elected Trump, it was a sign to certain elements within our culture that things are going to roll back. And if we don't want things to roll back to 50, 60 years ago, like we have to fucking, like, it, it, it starts with shaming and screaming and being really angry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you know in your research, did you ever see if there was. Have there ever been any more concentration camps in Germany? Um, not that I'm aware. I mean, well, okay. So there were camps operated by the Soviet Union in parts of Germany, like Sachsenhausen, which is a camp outside of Berlin that was okay. a concentration camp for primarily Jewish people and political prisoners uh, and some POWs during World War II that the Nazis operated. When the Russians liberated it, they just filled it up with their prisoners. Right. Um, and I didn't. I didn't talk about the Russian gulags, which you could, you might argue, should be on a concentration camp po- podcast. Mm-hmm. The people who were put in the gulags had all been convicted of a crime, and those crimes were usually bullshit because the Soviet Union was just throwing everybody who they defined as an enemy onto the camps. But it was different than just we're going to lock up all these women and children who have right. actually who have not. We're not even saying they've committed a crime. We yeah. just need to put them in a camp, which is why I've separated the two. Um, which is not to say we won't cover gulags at some point, but mm-hmm. yeah, there there were camps that you could call a concentration camp that were in that Germany post World War II. Yeah. Not really death camps, though. Right, yeah. nothing to that extreme. Yeah, and you don't hear about them much. Yeah, and it's yeah. I mean, there's not as much because like we're only starting to understand in the last ten or fifteen years, getting a good idea of how the gulags in Russia really worked because yeah. you know it's very recently that those archives got open to the world. So yeah. Here's the thing. I, 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 as a black man, can't say there's something changing. I can feel it. Because people have been asking for this change for decades. You know, the change in the way people think and how you treat people and stuff like that. Uh, what I can say is the generation we're in where everything is loud and visible mm-hmm. is helping. Yeah. Because... People have an outlet to instantly tell you how they feel about something. Uh, And they have an outlet to instantly show you what's wrong. And even though we live in like a 24-hour news cycle, I I do think that the fact that things are just so in our face and so instant, and we see them coming back to back to back to back, that something hopefully will change to the point that hopefully our kids... And their kids don't have to deal with this shit well, <laughs> like anymore. I think that there's there's a different story running through you know the podcast I just delivered, the story of the concentration camp. There is a more uplifting story, which is the story of 
you look back at when we were putting Indians on reservations and marching and and, ex- and carrying out, you know, genocidal acts. It yeah. wasn't it wasn't a single genocide against the Native Americans. It was a bunch of different genocidal acts against specific tribes. Yeah. But you listen to how Andrew Jackson talked about them, and he didn't talk about them like they were human beings. And I don't think you go back to the 1800s, the early 1800s, and you go to a person in England or a person in France, and you say, like, hey, this guy over in China, this guy over in Africa, this guy, are they all human beings? Most people would say no. Most mm-hmm. people would say they're different. They're not the same. They're not as human as I am, right? right? And that's why you can justify stuff like slavery and stuff like the slaughter in the Congo. But throughout this story, where you've got all these concentration camps, you also have people getting outraged about them. Yeah. And that growing, you know, it it's starts growing, with the outrage against Cuba, and then their outrage at the Boers, and then it hits a fucking fever pitch at the outrage over the German concentration camps, which is why everyone starts finding new names for these things yeah. after that, and why they stop killing so many people in them. Right. Um, and so the uplifting story in this dark story of concentration camps is that now we're at a point where you go anywhere in the world. You go to China, you go to British England, you go to Zaire, whatever. You talk to an average person on the street and you say, hey, this guy, half a world away, is he a human being the same as you? Now I think most people say yes. Yeah. And that's and like – that's was – Yeah. That's the uplifting part. Yeah. yeah and I think that's kind of what I was trying to allude to is there's been outrage Yeah. before. It's just our outrage is growing Because we can connect our outrage to somebody across the world almost instantly. Yeah. Um, So we don't need to just be in the same room to say, hey, are you outraged? Yeah, I'm outraged too. Now we can see, oh man, there are people all around this world who are outraged about this. And we're going to do something about it. Uh, And we're emboldened to do something about it, unfortunately. The other side is also emboldened. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's. Yeah. (laughs) But let's end on the uplifting note of uh, be emboldened, do something about it, go join a protest at your local ICE headquarters, do something. something. Yeah. Don't listen. This is a this is a great service that you have done with just bringing a lot of this stuff to light, Uh, because I know there's going to be a lot of people who listen to this right now who. Be like, damn! I didn't know. I didn't know that. I didn't know the British know that. were putting people in camps yeah. while they were fighting the Germans. Yeah, yeah, and 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 they won't look at this as just a singular moment in history, but instead uh, a part of our culture. Yeah, and realize that this is a part of our culture that needs to change. Yeah, for um, sure. So this is the first step. If you don't know about this, this is the first step. Now you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, now do something. Yeah, do something about it. All right. Yeah. That's a good note. That's a good uh, note. Jaquise, you want to yes. plug your pluggables? Uh, plug my pluggables. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. That sounds bad. Yeah, leave, yeah. I, I use I'll that every all time because it's gross. Open. No, it's gross. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look. Culture Kings. Me, Edgar, who's also been on your pod. Uh, we co-host mm-hmm. it right here on the How Stuff Works Network. Uh, listen to it. Uh, we're, we're not as smart. But uh, we'll make you laugh. No, I'm not smart. Uh, I just I just steal quotes from smart people's books. <laughs> hey, man, we're not even smart enough to do that. Uh, we get a lot of shit wrong. <laughs> uh, but yeah, listen to it. We like to make you laugh, and we like to have some thought-provoking uh, conversations, hopefully to get you thinking about stuff. Uh, and also, I'm in these streets. I'm out here performing all around L.A., so you can catch me on a number of stages doing some comedy. That's that's what it is. At Jackie's Neal on Twitter. Well, thank you. Jaquise Neal for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, You've been wonderful. Um, You you can find Behind the Bastards online at behindthebastards.com. We'll have, there were a lot of sources for this podcast, so we'll list them all there. 
Um, and you can do research on your own, which I encourage, especially the book British Concentration Camps. It's a really important book. You can find me on Twitter at I Write OK. You can also find uh, the podcast on Twitter at, at Bastards Pod. So if I've gotten something wrong or uh, if you have additional questions or you know things you want to ask about, drop us a line. We love talking to you. Um, I'm going to do something a little weird at the end of this because I assume anyone who's still listening is a real big fan of the show or me. So I'm just going to suggest something for you to check out that I like. There's a great band. You can find uh, his video, Courtney, on YouTube. He's called... The Narcissist Cookbook. You can also find him on Spotify and on Patreon. He's a British guy. Some of the best music I've heard recently uh, doesn't seem to have a very right reach yet, so please check him out. That's my recommendation this week. Um, I'll be back Tuesday with another story, probably of a specific terrible person rather than a specific terrible trend in history. Um, So yeah, thank you for listening, and please check us out. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.